what factors influence the flip angle? Flip angle is proportional to the duration of the RF pulse and the magnitude of the RF pulse. Again, flip angle depends on the RF pulse and the magnitude of the RF pulse. Which coils generate pulse? It is the transmit coils. Now we're going to talk about spin echo sequence and how the echo is generated. But first, let's address a concept of free induction decay. If you imagine a tuning fork and you hit the tuning fork, the tuning fork will generate pulse or generate waves. And those waves will taper slowly and decrease in amplitude over time. This is free induction decay. So when we send an RF pulse, the same mechanism happened. Send an RF pulse, the RF pulse is gone, and then the tissue will generate resonance or have free induction decay that will weaken slowly over time. In the MRI, this happens, like I said before, multiple times in prior episodes because we change the direction of the protons. Typically, the proton is in a direction relative to the external gradient applied by the external magnet. And when we send the RF pulse, we change that alignment. Then those protons will resonate to get back to their original alignment. And that is the free induction decay. It will decay over time, and that's why it's free induction decay. Now, when the signal decays to its almost baseline in spin echo sequence, this is considered TE half. So half the time of the echo before we get the echo. At that time, we're not talking about TR time. It's not starting another uh, pulse. We're just talking about the RF pulse. We sent an RF pulse, a created signal, which using three free induction decay, that signal decayed. Now, right before we get the echo and spin echo sequence, as the free induction decay of the signal, we do send another pulse. This is not an RF pulse, it is kind of coming from the RF pulse, but it's not the original pulse. It's not the original direction. We sent a specific pulse at a 180 degree, and we send it at TE half, meaning half of the time before generating that echo. And what that pulse does, it creates repetition of opposite to the free induction decay and refocuses the spin echo sequences and produces the echo. Again, we sent the original RF pulse at 90 degree. So all the RF pulses are at 90 degree. And it generated free induction decay and the signal decay. At half TE time, meaning before the echo, at the time midline before the echo is received, we sent a pulse at 180 degree. That 180 degree refocusing pulse, it's called refocusing pulse. That refocusing pulse at 180 degree will refocus the signal and allow us to generate the echo. And this is an important property of spin echo sequences that they have the 180 degree refocusing pulse. So you have to remember that pulse is 180 degree refocusing pulse. And then at TE time, echo is generated. And then we send another RF pulse at when TR time is ready again. We send another pulse and and that pulse is at 90 degree, generate free induction decay. We At half TE time, we send a refocusing 180 degree pulse and that pulse allows us to generate the echo. And then we send another 
pulse or RF pulse, 90 degree RF pulse at the new TR time, which allows us to repeat and so on and so forth. So the hallmark of spin echo sequence is the refocusing pulse at half TE time, which allows us to generate the echo. And that pulse, the refocusing pulse, is at 180 degree. There is no way around this question, you just have to remember it. What determines the T2 time constant? T2 time constant depends on spin-spin interaction. Again, spin-spin interaction determines the T2 time constant. And the way I remember that spin-spin interaction is related to T2 is spin-spin. The word spin is repeated twice, and that's T2. Then we have spin-lattice interaction which determines T1 time constant. Again, T1 co time constant, spin lattice, and the one in T1 looks like an L, so spin lattice interaction. And T2, the word 2, spin spin interaction, determines the T2 time constant. And to go back to the first episode of MRI, we said that T1 relates to returning to the longitudinal magnetization, and we said the one looks like an L, and T1 returning to longitudinal magnetization, and T2, we said the 2 starts with a T, and T2 is the time to return to transverse magnetization. I think now I'm going to take a moment and cover common terms that we hear about T1 short, T2 short, and what that means in terms of signal. So when we say T1 short, that means it's bright on T1. And remember, we said T1 has short TR and short TE. So anything that is T1 short will be bright on T1. Now, if we say T2 short, it actually means T2 dark. So it's the opposite. Why? Because we said T2 imaging has long TE and long TR sequences, and anything that is short on T2 will appear dark on T2. So short on T1 means bright, short on T2 means dark. Contrast shortens T1 time, and so it appears bright on T1, and it actually shortens T2 as well, and it causes it to appear dark. And that's why we don't really image contrast using T2 imaging, or do T2 post-contrast imaging. So there are additional features that we need to know about common signal in tissue. For example, muscle tissue is considered T2 short or dark on T2. And the way I remember it, muscle does not contain water or much less water than fat. And so it is T2 short and T2 dark. Well, what does that really matter? This matters when we're evaluating liver signal and we want to know the property of the liver. Is it really T2 dark liver? Because if the liver is dark on T2 or significantly darker than normal on T2, then that would indicate that there is a pathology. And common exam question is T2 dark liver and typically darker than the adjacent muscle, and that would be hemochromatosis. So again, T muscles are T2 dark, and the liver is dark on T2, but it's slightly brighter than the adjacent muscle. So if it's darker than the adjacent muscle, there is pathology related to it. And the way I remember muscles are dark is I know that fat is bright on T2, and because muscle contain less water than fat, I know it's going to be short on T2, and it's going to be dark on T2. Another question regarding the echo on spin echo sequences. And I'm not asking all these questions in order because 
I want to give you time to forget. And once you forget something, I can remind you of it. And this way, it will be returned, retained in your memory for a longer time. What factors influence echo size? Remember, echo is generated from spin echo sequence. And what factors determine the echo size or the amplitude of the echo? It's dependent on both TE time, which is the echo time, and repetition time, so TR time. Since we talked about T2 imaging and T1 imaging, and we said for T1 imaging, we want short TR and short TE time, and for T2 imaging, we wanted a long TE and long TR time. Now, what about proton density imaging? Proton density imaging relates to the proton composition within the structure. And for proton density imaging, it has long TR time and short TE time. Again, long TR just like T2, but short TE just like T1. So it has both like long T1 and short, uh, sorry, it has short TE just like T1 and long TR just like T2 signal. And the way I remember it is I spell the word proton with number one at the end. So P-R-O-T-O-N-E and it tells me that it's long TR time. Now let's talk about the inversion recovery sequences. So inversion recovery sequences have a unique pulse sequence. Pulse sequence referred to the order of pulses that we give and that would identify the sequence that we're in. Remember how we said in spin echo sequence the original RF pulse is given at a 90 degree RF pulse and then we said a half TE time we give a 180 degree refocusing pulse and then we get the echo and then we start again with another uh, 90 degree pulse at new TR interval and so on and so forth. Now inversion recovery imaging has the same 90 and 180 degree pulses but before we give the 90 degree pulse we give the inversion 180 degree pulse. So before the 90 degree pulse we give a 180 degree pulse given at T inversion time, TI time and that is the hallmark of the pulse sequence of inversion recovery imaging. So inversion recovery imaging is conventional spin echo plus an 80 degree, 180 degree inversion pulse given prior to the 90 degree RF pulse. And you can look up spin echo diagrams or uh, pulse diagrams to understand what I'm talking about. You really have to know this for the exam. They will give you the pulse diagram and ask you what is the sequence associated with it. Now, they can ask you how to calculate the inversion time, which is the time that you have to give the 180 degree inversion pulse prior to the 90 degree pulse. The inversion time is 0.7 multiplied by the T1 property of the tissue that we're trying to suppress. Again, it's 0.7 multiplied by the T1 time of the tissue that we're trying to suppress. Once we give the 180 degree inversion pulse, the tissue will start gaining its signal and its ability to produce signal that will appear on the image. And this is called regrowth after the inversion recovery sequence or pulse. And we need to understand some tissue will regain its signal or its ability to give signal faster than others. And the question will come into either sorting the signal 
or sorting the tissue wall, which regain its magnetization after the 180 degree pulse versus what's the fastest, what's the slowest, or questions of that sort. And typically, they'll give you three tissues. They'll give you fat, brain, and CSF. And we need to know what regains its uh, inversion recovery fastest and slowest. The way I remember is this is all based on the T1 imaging, and that's the pulse inversion based on all T1. And so it relates to the T1 property. So fat is bright on T1, and it has short T1 properties, and so it will regain its signal the fastest. Then water is dark on T1, and so it will regain its magnetization the slowest. And brain parenchyma is in the middle. Again, to summarize, when we're talking about inversion recovery pulses, we're talking about T1 property on these images. And the question will be in the, along the lines of what tissue regains its magnetization fastest or slowest or along those lines. And I just remember that inversion recovery is based on T1 property of the image. And for example, fat is T1 short and water is T1 long. T1 short means it's bright on T1 and it will be the fastest to regain its signal and it will water or CSF will be the slowest to regain its signal or recover from the inversion recovery. Now we're going to talk about selecting accesses on pulse diagram and this is also a common question and we really need to understand it both as radiologists and for our test. Number one fact, phase encoding gradient or phase encoding steps are always the Y gradient. Again, phase encoding is always the Y axis. Let me repeat that. Phase encoding is the Y axis. Another fact about the phase encoding, it's the shortest axis of the image. So Y axis does not apply to our standard X and Y dimension. Let's say you have a slice of the abdomen. In the abdomen, typically people are wider than taller. And so the y-axis is anterior to posterior. But if you have someone who is morbidly obese and their anterior to posterior dimension is much longer than their lateral to lateral dimension, then the phase encoding step will switch and it will be the lateral to lateral. The same thing with the skull, for example. The skull is typically longer on the anterior to posterior dimension, so we do not use anterior to posterior as our phase encoding gradient or our y-axis. Rather, its distance from ear to ear is the phase encoding gradient in the skull. Why do we choose that? Why do we choose the phase encoding gradient to be the shortest axis on the slice? It's because the phase encoding step is the step that takes longest. The frequency encoding or readout sequence does not take a long time. And again, that's why the phase encoding step, we want to shorten the imaging time as much as possible. And so we'll take that to be the shortest axis and everything else is mapped around that. Now, the x-axis is always the frequency encoding gradient. Let me repeat that again. x-axis is the frequency encoding gradient. The phase encoding gradient is the y-axis. And the slice select gradient is the z-axis. Again, z-axis is the slice select gradient. And the 
is encoding step is the y gradient or y axis and the frequency encoding is the x axis there is certain features that marks all of these sequences meaning on a pulse diagram the first thing that we see at the level of the rf pulse we'll see change in signal that is the slice select gradient or the z axis why is that is because whenever we start to give a pulse we want to select the slice and that tells us the x and y direction that we will fill so we have to specify it so the first change on the axis is at the level of the rf pulse on the pulse diagram is the z axis so that's where we have the first signal change now the phase encoding gradient and the frequency encoding gradient almost happen at the same time but the way they draw phase encoding gradient they draw it with multiple lines indicating that we're filling each line on the phase encoding step multiple times remember what we talked about the timing of a spin echo sequence we said spin echo sequence is tr time multiplied by the number of phase encoding steps multiplied by the number of excitations and i said the number of excitations is the number of times that each phase encoding gradient is felt or each phase encoding gradient is repeated in the key space to get a better signal to noise ratio and that's the number of excitation and that's or that's demonstrated on the phase encoding pulse diagram by drawing the pulse diagram like almost a half arch and this half arch is filled with number of smaller arches those smaller arches indicate the number of excitations